October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode 38, Down Under, part 2. Last time we talked about strong, shirtless Samoan men. We talked about Willie White's horrible, yet surprisingly effective pickup lines. And somehow this all had to do with Australia. So let us continue. Ellen White's presence in Australia became apparent when plans were laid for a camp meeting in Brighton. No, not Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. No, not the Brighton with a beach in England either. I'm talking about the Brighton just outside of Melbourne. You know, the one with that row of bright beach boxes. The one with the nice sand. No, never mind. Goodness, people, how many Brightons are there? Do they all have beaches? Do you think one of them could maybe be on a mountain or something? And I know what you're thinking. There are plenty of Brightons out there that don't have beautiful beaches. Yeah, and the only reason why you, dear listener, even know that is probably because you live near one of the 27 different towns named Brighton in America. And stop smirking, Australia. I'm not done with you yet. You have a suburb of Brisbane named Brighton. You have a suburb of Adelaide named Brighton. You have a suburb of Sydney named Brighton. And, yes, the suburb of Melbourne that we're talking about named Brighton. Good grief. Okay, sorry about that. My therapist says I need to get help. And, yes, I know exactly how that sounds. Anyway, here's what I was getting at. Ellen White was a general. Her arrival brought leadership, which manifested itself in how she managed to organize the men and women there almost as soon as she arrived. She got the publishing house shaped up. She helped install A.G. Daniels as conference president, and she got the pastors working in harmony. That done, she launched out for New Zealand and tried the camp meeting idea there in Wellington. It went, wait for it, Wellington enough, and so she turned back toward Melbourne, Australia's largest city, to try it there. An Adventist camp meeting in those days was indeed a spectacle to behold. An army of workers set out stitching and sewing tents, while others printed advertisements. Hundreds of white tents stretched out in perfectly lined rows so that it must have seemed like the ancient Israelites camping in the wilderness. And, of course, they didn't have enough tents. People came from all over to see what was going on. Melbourne was in the economic dumps, and this was free fun. The food was cheap, the tents were clean, the preaching was solid. It's an Adventist party, guys. Besides that, people came who were spiritually curious to hear what this new group had to say. Some brought their copies of Uriah Smith, Daniel, and Revelation that had somehow ended up in their hands. Others had somehow gotten a copy of The Great Controversy and wanted to meet its author. Some had kept Sabbath, and for the first time they were connecting with like-minded believers. Finally, they weren't alone in their convictions anymore. They had community. Well, the camp meeting wouldn't have been as successful without one of Ellen White's great and most overlooked gifts as a missionary, her ability to draw talented people to her. Maybe it's because she was a founder of the church. Maybe it's because she was a prophet. Maybe it was her leadership skills. But when Ellen White shows up, others do too. Merritt G. Kellogg, the older brother of John Harvey, who pioneered the work in California all those years ago, showed up. Merritt was serving as the ship's doctor on the Pitcairn, sailing the blue seas and healing the islanders they stopped to see. 
But when Ellen White is in town, people tend to stop doing what they're doing, and they come out to help out. O.A. Olson, the General Conference President, also came halfway around the world to speak at this camp meeting, and as a result, the preaching was top-notch. Kellogg could regale with his mission stories on the high seas and maybe dispense some free medical advice. And hey, while he's there, he might as well get married again, too, because that's what he did. Australia is nice. The Brighton camp meeting was a success. About 100 people ended up being baptized, which was kind of amazing, considering they had maybe a 1,000 Adventists in Australia at this time. Two of those baptisms were a pair of brothers named Anderson, one of whom was to be the father of Roy Allen Anderson, who would eventually update Uriah Smith's views on Daniel and the Revelation. But where there are baptisms, there is trouble. Adventists were kicked out of their churches during the Millerite movement, and you'll find many newly baptized Adventists today estranged from families and jobs because of their faith. And it's not because they chose it. One man's wife became an Adventist, and her husband was so furious He told her if she wanted to keep the Sabbath, she needed to leave his house. So she left. And when the husband found his 16-year-old daughter, he gave her the same options. So she left. And when the mother heard of this, she went home to get her daughter. The husband asked her whether her return meant that she was giving up on this silly Sabbath idea. No, his wife replied, I'm coming to get my daughter and she's going to live with me. The woman's husband changed tactics and begged her to give up these terrible doctrines, as Ellen White put the words in his mouth. At last, he said they could both stay and keep Sabbath so long as they don't go to any more of these Adventist meetings, okay? But the wife refused that too. She said, I will be a faithful wife to you in everything, but should I listen to your proposals and disobey God, I should not be a faithful child to him and therefore should not be a faithful wife to you or a faithful mother to my children. Well, then the husband asked her to come speak to his pastor, and she reluctantly agreed. So, this being 10 o'clock at night, they walked over to his house and woke him up. The husband told the sleepy-eyed pastor everything that had just happened, and then said, was I right to kick my wife and daughter out? The pastor said, you were absolutely correct. And that's when this story takes a weird turn, because the husband then told his pastor, No, I did not do right. I abused my wife, and I was unkind and abusive to my child. I see now how shameful was my course in treating a woman, the mother of my children, in so heartless a manner. He then asked his wife for forgiveness and invited them to return home. Ellen White editorialized at the end of this story, saying that the woman was more respected and more loved than she was before because of the courage of her convictions. Others expected the husband to be converted as a result. But not all husbands respected strength in their wives and in their daughters. Accepting Adventism had always been hard, including for the Anderson brothers, who owned a store they decided to close on Sabbath against the stiff opposition of their own wives and especially their father-in-law. It wasn't easy. But before we leave the Brighton camp meeting, I have to tell you about a curious conversation Ellen White had with a woman from Melbourne. This woman, whose first name I cannot for the life of me uncover, we shall call Mrs. Press. Now, I know her first name starts with an M, but uh, if you can find this out, let me know. Anyway, 
Mrs. Press was the leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in Victoria, an international organization which began 20 years before in America, hoping to war against the destructive effects of alcohol. But the Temperance Union put a lot more planks in its platform, from labor reform to sanitation to peace to women's suffrage to poverty to immigration to food reform to Sunday laws to drugs to... Well, I think you get the picture. The Adventist relationship with the Temperance Union has always been interesting. Ellen White supported it early, and by early I mean she addressed 500 of its earliest members at one of its first rallies in Battle Creek. A few years later, Adventists were helping to organize another event in Battle Creek where 5,000 people showed up. And after that, John Harvey Kellogg was one of the group's biggest supporters. He turned his sanitarium into a kind of lab for them, writing about the destructive effects of alcohol in the patients that he saw. In his way, Kellogg and the Adventists supplied the fiery rhetoric of the Temperance Union missionaries with more stories and facts with which to make their case to the world. And at the same time, the Temperance Union would eventually try to start passing Sunday laws, which terrified Adventists, as we have seen. And yet, Ellen White's support for the Temperance Union's other causes was specific and unwavering. So when a representative of the Union approached Ellen White in Australia, it was a meeting of allies. Mrs. Press had certainly heard of John Harvey Kellogg and the aid he was providing to the Union in Battle Creek. Mrs. Press was also in charge of the food reform work in Victoria, which meant that she was fighting to ensure as healthy a food as possible for the people. The Temperance Union was doing this in the American South, too, but Australia was especially needful of this work. Ellen White said, The one thing she wished she would have brought to Australia was a cook. When she asked about the quality of the meat in her local area, there were rumors that the health inspectors and the ranchers were in league with one another so that diseased animals were slaughtered and sent to market. In some of the larger cities, sewage was dumped in the same rivers where men were fishing. Today we talk about hormones and all of that as if this is a new problem, but having access to quality food has been a concern for a long time, and it definitely was to Mrs. Press and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Now, quality food reform was one thing, but Mrs. Press and her family were full-on vegetarians. They took it to the next level. Meanwhile, Ellen White and her family were not. Why not, Mrs. Press asked. The answer was that Ellen White traveled a lot and visited people a lot, and it just wasn't always easy to make a meal without meat. But Ellen White still seemed bothered by this challenge. And it wasn't long before she resolved to give up meat completely. Ellen White would later say that she felt impressed by God to give up meat altogether after the Brighton camp meeting. So it seems that the mysterious Mrs. Press played a key role in that process, giving Ellen White the final nudge into vegetarianism. Now, Ellen White recommended others give up meat, too, both for health reasons and out of concern for animal cruelty. But she was always practical about it. She understood that meat-eating was an economic issue as well as a health issue. Meat was relatively cheap, and fresh fruits and vegetables were not. In America, a pound of beef was as cheap as seven cents. Beans were five cents per pound, and a can of corn 
was a whopping 16 cents per pound. But this is only half of the story because people had animals. And so when you slaughter a cow, you can pickle the meat, you can boil it, you can make jerky, you can smoke it. In other words, you had options to make it last a lot longer than a vegetable would last. And vegetables, by the way, were seasonal, especially in the northern parts of America where most Adventists lived. You couldn't just go to Walmart and buy a tomato from wherever. Meat was cheap, and it was always available. Fresh fruit and vegetables weren't. End of story, vegetarianism was hard. And it was especially hard on poorer people. And that's one reason why Ellen White never said everyone absolutely had to give up meat. She recognized that there were situations where that just wasn't possible or desirable. She said, quote, I feel sincere pity for families who have newly come to the faith and who are so pressed with poverty that they know not from whence their next meal is coming. It is not my duty to discourse to them on healthful eating. There is a time to speak and a time to keep silent. End quote. For now, it was a time to speak up. Ellen was enjoying her new relationship with Mrs. Press, and so some Adventists were dispatched to teach healthy cooking classes at a Women's Christian Temperance Union cafe in Melbourne. Mrs. Press, of course, would end up being baptized a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, with evangelistic work in Australia kicking off successfully, Ellen turned her attention to the temporary Bible school that was operating in the city. The goal, of course, was to turn this school into a college, just like Adventists did in America. Battle Creek College aside, American Adventists preferred, or maybe we should say aspired, to keep their schools in the country where students could live and farm and make things to support themselves. That's the Adventist plan, or at least that's definitely Ellen White's plan. So Ellen White, A.G. Daniels, and the other American Adventists were shocked to learn that many Australian Adventists didn't really see this as the Adventist plan. They kind of saw it as the American plan. And as we've said, the Australian colonies' economy was in the dumps. I mean, banks were closing, workers were rioting, the rural economy was collapsing. So the idea of building a big, expensive school out in the sticks horrified many local Adventists. In their view, these Americans had swaggered in with their money and enthusiasm, and they intended to follow whatever plan they had done in America without really thinking about the context of what Australia was like at this time. Nevertheless, of course, the Australian Adventists came around to the idea of a school that Ellen White had proposed. So after an exhaustive search all over Eastern Australia, and believe me, it's exhausting to read about this exhaustive search, Willie White found a beautiful 1,500 acres in Coornbong, about 50 miles north of Sydney, but only a few miles from Newcastle. So not bad. The price for the land was $4,500, which was about $3 an acre, which is amazing because most landowners around that time wanted about $50 to $75 an acre. So this was a steal, even if the land wasn't the very best. Ellen White had high hopes for all the food that could be grown there. She wanted to plant an orchard and she wanted to plant all sorts of vegetables and she had dreams well, sure, the experts said it would never work. Several men from Iowa had said the same, used to the rich Iowan soil back home. They didn't really have to think very creatively or work quite as hard in Iowa in their farming. 
but Ellen White suspected that a little ingenuity and persistence was about all it would take to turn Kurenbong into the Australian Iowa. And I'm sure our Australian listeners will appreciate that comparison because everybody wants to be Iowa. Well, the problem was money. $4,500 was cheap, relatively, but the Avenists in Australia just didn't have the money. They needed $1,500 for the first payment in just weeks. Willie White told John Harvey Kellogg, These are dreadful times in the colonies. Good times to buy if you have the money, but hard times to raise the money. Well, guess what? The Avenists didn't have the money. When Stephen Haskell had left Australia on to his next adventure, he told Ellen that he had met two men who would give $10,000 to the work in Australia. So, all right, problem solved. Thanks, Haskell. Except, of course, somehow that never materialized. So Haskell wrote again, saying, Okay, my next letter to you, $1,000 will be arriving. Since it took the mail about a month to make it from America, they put it on their calendars. And the White went out there and bought food that she didn't have the money for. She bought it on credit. She told the grocer, I'll pay you back at the end of the month. No worries. And because she was essentially running a small compound at this point. All right, so weeks passed. Letter arrives in the mail from America. Here it is. You do a little shimmy. This is the big one. She opens it up. And there's a little IOU in there from the Pacific Press. And they said, yeah, we saw that $1,000 was coming your way, but we at the Pacific Press happened to need $1,000, and we took it. Very sorry, we'll get you covered someday. One can only imagine the depth of frustration that she felt. Willie was despondent. She was frustrated that the review wasn't advertising her books as aggressively as she would like. She needed that money. She was frustrated with the General Conference when they also, around this time, cut her and Willie's salary by $2 a week. She was frustrated that the Pacific Press hijacked the money she needed. I mean, come on, guys! From down under, it seemed to Ellen that the American Adventists had gotten pretty spoiled. That maybe they had forgotten what it was like to work in a new field. Australia was in a recession, people. Come on! Back in episode 34, we called this mission to Australia as having exiled Ellen. And of course, she was not actually exiled. I mean, good luck with that. But we said that it had the effect of exiling her. She felt isolated and ill-used. She saw the low priority that Australia was given by the General Conference, which had so many eggs in so many baskets that it was stretched thin. But whatever the reason, she was frustrated at what she saw as indifference in America. For the first time, Ellen White was looking at her homeland through the lens of a developing nation. Ellen White had become Australian. I mean, she didn't want to go to Australia at first, of course. But the more time she spent in Australia, the more she became a champion for the cause there. The more she fell in love with the people and put herself out for them. She said that if she couldn't find the $4,500 to pay off the land for a school, that she would sell everything she owned in America. That's how committed she was. That's how personally invested she was. So that when it was suggested that she might be sent to Africa next as a missionary, she put her foot down. She was staying in Australia until the work was done. 
and if she had to scream and cry and write letters to America until she was blue in the face to get somebody over there to pay attention to her and the work that was going on, well, by George, that's what she was going to do. In the meantime, Willie White was borrowing money anywhere he could, and yet one more frustration would be added to the list of long frustrations before things started to finally sort of work out. Well, this new frustration was that after he had made an agreement for this land, the Foreign Mission Board back in Battle Creek had sent a very kind letter saying, hey, you know that property that you've agreed to buy and have spent some money on already? Let's hold off on that. Are you sure you've looked for the best possible land? Because for what it looks like on the other side of the world here in Battle Creek, you guys could probably spend some more time looking. So just hold off on that. We're not going to send you any money until you've looked some more. Well, here's something I think missionaries would love the administrators back home to know. And that's this. If you're going to send advice, please send money too. Ellen White nearly despaired. She even considered going to Africa after all, wondering if the leaders in Battle Creek would ever let Australia get off the ground or whether they would just keep stumbling in the way because I guess a few men on the other side of the world know best. A.G. Daniels wasn't exactly excited about this property either, and he was on the ground there, and neither was the man who would end up being the school's principal. Even a government expert had come in and decided that very little can grow on this property. So what's the point of owning 1,500 acres of useless land? But somehow, Ellen White pushed it through, confident that this was the spot they should choose. They had made a commitment to buy this land, and they need to see it through. God had shown her that things would grow. And with this confidence, some money began to arrive. Dozens of kids arrived also, and they began clearing acres and acres and acres of land. They would work about six hours at the beginning of the day, and then they would go to class for a few more hours. And over the next few years, they would have to raise another $18,000 to build buildings on this property because, that's right, the $4,500 was just for the land. But this would get built, and owing to the rivers nearby, they would call this new school Avondale. Now we've talked about how Adventists started churches in Australia. They formed conferences there. They began a publishing house there. They built a school in Australia. All very standard operating procedure at this point. But there was that one missing puzzle piece, health. Willie White was a driving force here, too. He had done some research on what the Kellogg brothers were up to in Battle Creek and this health food stuff they were making. Something called wheat flakes? Well, John Harvey Kellogg said that he would send Willie everything he needed to make his own wheat flakes for the low, low, low price of $1,000 and a tiny small cut of the profits. Well, this seemed fair to Willie, who also managed to snag one of Kellogg's bakers to show them how to do it. And just like that, within a few years, the old sawmill at Avondale was being used to manufacture health food. The Sanitarium Health Food Company was born. The Sanitarium Health Food Company did something unique, however, 
in opening up stores, cafes, and all the major cities of Australia. And that seems to be a big reason why they're still hugely popular in Australia today. So go Wheat Bix. Of course, it didn't stop with health food. Naturally, an actual sanitarium was built. You'll remember that a sanitarium is basically a hospital, but with a more holistic focus on healing rather than just patching you up and sending you back out. It's a whole lifestyle thing. Now, when it came to funding a sanitarium, Kellogg was much more eager to help. He sent $1,000. Ellen White chipped in a few thousand dollars. Voila, sanitarium. And this is how the Avondale campus became something very special in Adventism. It wasn't the first school, but it was unique because, yes, it was a school teaching kids not just about God or how to spell, but they taught them how to cut trees, how to make health food, how to print books, how to farm, and with a sanitarium, how to be a nurse. It had everything Adventism had to offer on one campus. And because of Australia's financial woes, poorer Adventists could move there and be cared for in the community. Sometimes they were just given land to build their homes on, free of charge. And if you didn't know how to build your home, well, there was plenty of help for them in that area. Naturally, Ellen White was right in the end. Her persistence paid off. Soon enough, there were fat cows grazing on the land, but don't eat them. There was an orchard producing hundreds of bushels of fruit. And there was even a beehive from which they harvested, get this, 3,000 pounds of honey. Avondale was working. Ellen White's vision was working. She would still have plenty of obstacles ahead, but there had to be something deeply satisfying about fighting against all the odds and the naysayers and the lack of money, oh, always the lack of money, and then looking on a few years later to see this Adventist oasis thriving, this Adventist village, this Adventist vision materialized on the campus of Avondale. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. 
that's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.